Hi, I'm Azilia. And I'm Iqbal. And this is the He Says... She Says... They Say Podcast! Podcast. <laughs> are we supposed to say they say? You guys are very good at this, are you? Hello, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of the He Says, She Says, They Say Podcast. This week is a very exciting week for us as we have two guests on the show to discuss the topic on why some women uphold the patriarchy. So our guests for this week is Lynn Davis, a researcher at the European Commission who is now currently residing in Brussels, and Basim Talha, an Egyptian residing in Canada, and the both of them will be representing their own past experiences and observation on the matter. Maybe you'd like to introduce yourselves. Sure. So... As you've heard, I'm Lynn Davies. I was born in Scotland to a Welsh and Danish father and a Malay Singaporean mother. I grew up in Trinidad and Egypt, which are two countries that offer drastically different iterations of the patriarchy. I moved back to Scotland for university, where I studied English literature and social history at the University of Edinburgh, which is where I met Iqbal. I then took a one-year break, during which time I gave birth to my daughter, Cleo, And I then did a Master of Science in Evidence-Based Social Policy at the University of Oxford. So after a few years of work as a social scientist in academia, I now live in Brussels with my husband and daughter. And I manage research and social policy for the European Commission. Wow. And Lynn, if I'm not mistaken, you do some research in a professional capacity in this field or something related to this field? More so in the past than in my current role, but one of my areas of specialization is child and family policy and parenting interventions and everything to do with early childhood adversity and how it translates into later life experiences. So gender is really strongly tied up in that and the role of socialization and upholding the patriarchy. Mm. Perfect. Thank you, Lynn, for your introduction. Basim? Hi, everybody. As you know, my name is Basim, and I'm Egyptian. I was born in Canada, and I grew up in the U.S. for 13, 14 years. And I came to Malaysia in 2008 until 2018. So I was in Malaysia for about 10 years, studying, doing my bachelor's and my master's, and got a different view on how the world operates and how things happen in the eastern side of the world, which gave me a lot of perspective and allowed me to open my horizons a bit more. All right. So... The reason we wanted to go into this topic, why women uphold the patriarchy, I mean, we've had quite a number of things happen not too long ago. We had the elections in the US and, you know, we saw a huge number of women vote for Donald Trump, not only in this election, but also the first time when a lot of the horrible things he said about women, about vulnerable groups, despite that he still received an overwhelming support from white women in particular. And we saw it again this year. A lot of his closest spokespeople have been women. Kaylee McEnany. You, ha- you have the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Yes. You have Dr. Birch from the Coronavirus Task Force. Yes, oh, exactly. Tommy Lauren, whoever she oh, is, yeah. whatever her job is. Oh my God, is yeah, Tommy Lauren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is the worst. She's a conservative, she, she's a conservative yeah. radio host who's, yeah. who's far right. Yeah, we had Kellyanne Conway, who was also a senior mm-hmm. counselor to Donald Trump. Right. We had Sarah Sanders, who was a White House press secretary. So we've had a number of concrete examples of women stepping up and serving in these roles that enhance or even just reinforce existing institutions. So maybe if we could get our guests to share the thoughts on why this happens from 
a personal perspective or from any other perspective? Maybe, Lynn, we can start with well, you. Well, sure. I think um, there are multiple dimensions or multiple ways in which women uphold the patriarchy. So all of the examples that you've listed right now relate to Donald Trump and, in my perspective, to white supremacy. I think what we're talking about here is more the phenomenon where white women rally behind someone like Donald Trump because there's this, I guess, guaranteed safety or security in rallying behind the white supremacist. They prefer that to a fairer world where they lose the specific privilege that they have from being white women. And I think this is a much more patriarchal upholding that you see in the public sphere or in politics. And there's a whole other dimension of women upholding the patriarchy in the private sphere when it comes to things like sharing childcare responsibilities and who gets to progress in the workplace versus who has to take on more of their responsibilities at home. And also when we talk about things like rape culture and slut shaming, these are also areas where women can uphold the patriarchy by creating excuses for men and victim blaming. Interesting. So Lynn, how is that different? Like just maybe explain a little bit how women upholding existing institutions of patriarchy or of power in politics is different from some random Twitter girl who goes, if you wear something sexy at night, don't be surprised if you get sexually abused. Like how are those two things different? Well, I think one of them is aligned with a larger ideology, whereas the other is more contained in gender politics. So these white women who are supporting Trump support him because they also hate communism or because they're just uh, plainly extremely racist and they're trying to pull up the ladder behind them in the hopes that the men in their lives will be charitable enough to give them a higher status alongside them. The way that I see rape culture, for example, is more infighting. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history of the patriarchy dividing and conquering women and creating struggles among women in order to maintain their lower standing yeah and you know as long as we keep debating who does and doesn't deserve to get raped or who deserves justice and who doesn't then we don't really pay attention to the bigger enemy which uh, is power hungry white men not all white men <laughs> just to be clear we've got to be very careful about drawing boundaries here but you know there are, key, there are key actors who are the enemy and they tend to look very similar. <laughs> I, I want to elaborate on something that Lynn said, and uh, she's absolutely correct. But something I want to highlight is that even in 2016, when Hillary Clinton was going against Donald Trump, because of the history of her husband, Bill Clinton, who was also president, and because she's a woman, she lost the election to Donald Trump. So America still wouldn't have accepted a woman as a top official, like the president of the United States. That goes to show you another reason why the idea of patriarchy is very subtle. So that's why it's difficult, for example, to paint all white men or all men with the same brush, particularly in a, in a society like the U.S. In our cultures back home in the Middle East, it's very easy because the entire culture believes that in that same system. That same system is rooted in the culture, in the history. In the U.S., it's completely different. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between the subtleness of American patriarchy versus the obviousness of patriarchy yeah. elsewhere? Look at Saudi Arabia, for example. A conservative country, the founding country of Islam, highly patriarchal. Just recently, they're allowing women to drive and go out on the streets without male company. Just recently, within the last year or two, or even less than that. Mm. That shows you that how hardcore the patriarchy is there. In the U.S., for example, that level of patriarchy you don't see, but it's felt. So for example, with the 2016 elections, never mind the popular vote versus the actual vote. That's a different political story of the U.S. In terms of Hillary Clinton being a woman herself, that alone 
would have killed her chances to become president. Even though America has had the first black president, our first African-American president, President Obama, they accepted that he was different. Never mind African-American or not, he was the man. The fact that Hillary Clinton comes in and says it's time for a woman to be president, which is why it's so important now, for example, that Kamala Harris is on the second in command with Biden, which means she has one stepping stone to be president. If something happens to Biden, she becomes president. This would have never happened in 2016. If you don't mind, I do want to add to that. I, I completely agree that there is a real superiority complex in the West about how liberated their women are. And there's not really a nuanced understanding of the implicit ways that patriarchy works outside of the Middle East. So the Middle East is often used as an example, like, look, that's the place where women are oppressed and our women are all free to do whatever they want. But when you actually look into the more granular details of people's lives and the way that marriages work, that the workplaces function, even the kind of experiences that girls have at school the patriarchy just takes on different forms. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of symbolic of liberalism and freedom, but it's not real. So for example, when I was growing up in Egypt, it was a very in-your-face patriarchy. I couldn't walk to school without being harassed by people. And I developed a really bad posture because I was constantly looking down at my feet just to try and avoid making eye contact with anyone because that's just not what you want. It was very normal for people to try and grope you when they were riding past on their bicycles. And aside from just this blatant, obvious sexual tension in the entire society, you could feel it wherever you went, because as a woman, you could not occupy any space without yeah. every eye being on you. It was like being yeah. a walking magnet or a walking target. But aside from that, there was also all kinds of strange debates and heard all sorts of weird points of views from friends of mine who were Egyptian. I was in a counterculture, so... Most of my friends were Egyptian metalheads. I didn't spend that much time with the other expat kids. And they were very liberal in some ways. So they loved heavy metal. They wore the band shirts. They didn't really ascribe to Egyptian culture. And they didn't really live by the rules of Islam. I mean, they believed in it very strongly, but they constantly broke the rules. And they assumed that they would make up for it one day and secure their place. <laughs> it sounds <Dana>. familiar <laughs> to Malaysia, to be honest. Yeah, but there was a lot of resistance to the way that they lived. From a cultural perspective, they were painted as being Satanists. And all it really was is that they liked a different type of music and a different type of lifestyle, and they were often demonized. But even among these groups that were considered to be very forward thinking, they still had very archaic ideas of the differences between women and men. Yeah. So I Can you got, give us an example? Yeah. I was dragged into a huge debate about why it is that women can't be judges in Egypt. I have no idea if this is still the case. I haven't looked it up. But back when I lived there, between 2007 and 2012, it was illegal for women to be judges in the courts of law. And the reason is because, of course, of hormones and menstruation and the idea that we can't think straight for 25% of the time that we're alive. So how could we possibly be in charge of making these highly critical objective decisions? That's a excuse that keeps, keeps being brought up, not just with the courts, but in women taking high positions in companies, CEOs, managers. You hear that excuse being shuttled up a lot, especially in recent times and in leadership positions as in prime minister, president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first of all, no one talks at all about the impact of testosterone on people's abilities to think straight or they always do it in a very twisted context of like when I was in middle school in the sex ed health classes that I used to have. The girls would always be taken aside and given really, really specific instructions on how to rebuff a boy that wants to, you know take us to bed. 
And this was the seventh and eighth grade. We were between 12 and 13 most of the time. And they were saying things like, if a boy tells you that it physically hurts him, then you just have to keep saying no. So they're very willing to portray men as being out of control when it comes to their sex drive. And people are willing to blame hormones on it and make up all kinds of excuses for it. But when it comes to the impact of those same hormones on men's ability to hold positions of power and make important decisions and be on a global stage, no one is asking those same questions. (laughs) Yep. So that's the first thing that's kind of funny about the way we talk about hormones. The other thing on a kind of deeper scientific level is that there is really no clear evidence that there is such a thing as a male and a female brain. So what we know by now is that hormones can have an impact on how brains develop and how brains age, which is why women are much more likely to develop Alzheimer's than men, whereas men are more likely to develop other neurological disorders. But when it comes to mental abilities and preferences and other cognitive traits, it's totally impossible to determine whether there are strict gender differences because of the pure fact that the brain is really not pre-wired. It is the case that early in life, your brain is kind of mapped out. So we know that certain areas are responsible for certain functions. There's the cerebellum, which controls your voluntary movements, like speaking and moving, the prefrontal cortex, and it controls your executive functioning. But when it comes to your personality and which areas of the brain are stronger than others, that is all down to experience. Right. A really good example is when a baby is born, if you cover its eyes, it may never develop the ability to see because it's such a blank slate that it needs that experience of seeing things to then develop and grow that ability. Mm. And it's the same for everything. Your ability to express empathy. Yeah. All of this is learned over time. And there have been lots of studies into the brain structure of children who had really bad experiences early in life, things like being exposed to chronic stress from abusive parents, for example. In those cases, they tend to have much larger amygdalas, and they control things like the fear responses. And they have smaller prefrontal cortexes, and this controls executive functioning. So essentially, they kind of adapt to the world that they think they're going to grow up in. And we've been able to see that even 30 years down the line, those adults will still have overdeveloped amygdalas and underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes. So essentially what this means, to cut the science short, is that if there are any brain differences that are identified between women and men in scanning and any kind of imaging in adulthood, it's impossible to tell whether this is because of how they were socialized or because of biological sex differences. We know for a fact that women and men are raised very differently from birth. Lots of studies have shown that mothers are more likely to make eye contact with female babies than with male babies, and we do know that eye contact and being spoken to are both things that are really fundamental for children's emotional intelligence development and also their vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Then we get to the age of five or six or seven, and we start to see that girls tend to be more empathetic and they use more complex language. They're usually better at writing. Boys less so. They're better with numbers. A lot of that could be down to purely to experiences on the very micro level of their everyday life. Right. So essentially anything, all of the myths that I was hearing about male versus female brain differences or differences in our abilities. At the time when I was a teenager, I didn't really have the knowledge or the vocabulary to fight back against it. I just thought it was unfair and it was wrong, but I didn't have the proof that it was. And the way that they describe things, they use very circular logic in that kind of society. So they say, look, there aren't that many female mathematicians It's just because they're bad at math, because their brains can't handle numbers, or there are so few female leaders. It's because they don't have leadership skills. 
And, you know, they would never stop to think that it's maybe because girls don't receive that kind of positive feedback when they demonstrate leadership skills. Mm. Humans are desperate to be validated. We're social animals, so we're constantly trying to figure out our space in society. And if little girls are told that certain traits are more valuable than others, they will adapt themselves okay, to meet so them. Okay, so just to steer the discussion a little bit, we've talked about how certain things come to be and how certain things are this way, but really the aim of today's discussion we wanted to find out how these get reinforced by women themselves so you're hearing a lot about how women are at the butt end of discussions about hormones they're not fully treated when it comes to discussions about who should take leadership positions but why or what's in it for members of that very same group reinforcing and upholding these perspectives even at a seemingly negative cost to their own selves Basim, Lin's gone a lot into the science of it. Maybe you can share a bit more about cultural perspectives about why women uphold patriarchy, even though it comes at a seemingly detrimental cost to themselves. Yeah, going back to the cultural thing, let's look at it from the start, from the conservative point of view. Again, I'll take Saudi Arabia and Egypt as examples. For the longest time, the gender roles were very defined. Men would go out and do the hunting and the gathering and work and get the food, and the ladies would stay home and take care of the kids, the family, cook, all that kind of thing. And so, like, how much of this value system is unique to Islam or Middle Eastern countries? Like, you were alluding to it that patriarchy in Western countries is more subtle, but it does still exist to a degree, and how much of that is because of conservative values or religious values? Let me make a distinction here, because conservatism and Islam are two different things. Just because the upholding of patriarchy may be conservative, it's not from the Islamic background. Okay. Because Islamically speaking... Men and women are equal in the sight of God. In the last sermon of the Prophet, it was mentioned quite clearly that men are not better than women. We are all equal. The only thing that makes us better is piety or, for English translation, integrity. So from an Islamic point of view, patriarchy in Islam doesn't, it's not from an Islamic point of view. People say that because when you think of conservatism in the Middle East, you think about Islam. It's very closely connected, but not necessarily. Conservatism in the Middle East is cultural. It's not Islam. Okay, and so, with that said, why do some women uphold those cultural traditions if, as you say, it goes against Islam, it goes against their own interests? Well, for example, perhaps the women, like, they don't know any better. What they know is the system they were raised and were taught in. So that's a system to them. And because of how heavily the patriarchy and the ruling elite in Saudi Arabia, for example, has a strong grasp on them, they're unable to break away from those societal, cultural norms and values. You're, you're saying for them, like, it's not... A- patriarchal system or whatever it's normal and it's common i wouldn't mind adding into that just that there's a a lack of choice for a lot of women in whether or not to uphold the patriarchy so yeah as you've said like saudi arabia doesn't really allow for exploration but on a very fundamental level the women themselves don't really have other options because these mainstream societies are quite powerful in egypt for example if you thought a different way you tended to be on a fringe yep so in Cairo, for example, I knew a lot of women who did try to push against the patriarchy, and some of them had awful experiences. Their families would send them to insane asylums where they would be incarcerated. I got to know quite a few women. I think they would have been between my age at the time, so 16 and maybe early 20s. And they just don't have the same options that I do in the UK. If they decide to go against their family's values, the way that the legal system is set up, their fathers have control over them. They, they can send Absolutely. them, they can lock them away if they want to. And aside from that, they can also deny resources from them. They can keep them inside the house, refuse to educate them. So they leverage their power that they have over women, which is given to them by society, since the societies are built to make women dependent. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, that's another thing because in these highly conservative societies, education among women is not very high. And therefore, many yeah. women of those countries are not themselves adventurous. Yeah. Even if you're not being exposed, you yourself have innate curiosity of what's outside. Yeah. What else is there for me to know? What else can I grasp? Maybe I make yeah. my life a bit better or maybe I learn something for myself. Yeah. And there's nowhere for the curiosity to go because of censorship from the media. Absolutely. But also for a lot of them, it's a false promise too. They might learn about other alternatives and then become even more frustrated with the limited options that they have. And I have seen it happen that it has led to a lot of family strife and to more pain than they would have had if they just upheld yeah, the so system even as it was. Many women are, are exactly. actually believing that patriarchy is bad and it doesn't do anything for society they will imprison themselves in that system because the consequences of breaking away it's more of a risk for them it's more of a liability for their families and they don't want to put anybody through that okay so we're talking a bit about structures and why they keep those people in the structures within them but to some extent is there no individual agency like Lynn, you've brought this up yeah. with the yeah. women you know personally do mm -hmm. try and fight against the system. Are they all just trying to make the best situation of what they have within the system? Because you have this in other countries where the systems don't have these sort of consequences, but women still uphold other existing signs of yeah. patriarchy. So what's happening yeah. there? So two things. For the women that I do know, the two that I'm in touch with, they both managed to get out. So one left as an asylum seeker, basically, because she was in so much personal danger. The way that she escaped her family was by escaping into a marriage, which was also extremely mm -hmm. bad. And the way that she escapes the marriage was through divorce in Egypt. But because of other details of her lifestyle, which I don't want to get into, she succeeded in claiming asylum in Europe right. on specific grounds. So now she gets to live in a nice European city with her son. She's one of the bravest people I know. The way that she managed to get out of that situation took an insane amount of suffering and uncertainty. And it's great that she's managed to get where she is now. But it just goes to show if you don't fit the mold of what's considered acceptable, for some people, it's too much to try and stay and lead a double life. But also leaving is extremely difficult. So that's why I can see why Bassin uh, said a lot of people will choose the path of less resistance. But I think that this detail in particular makes it so much more interesting to me why it is that women in liberal countries where they have infinite choices still decide to uphold the patriarchy. Exactly. Yeah. That's my confusion as yeah. well. Like all the women like we mentioned earlier during yeah. the show. Like you said, they have all these options to topple over the patriarchy and to be the voice of freedom and yeah. fight, to fight for all these other women who don't have the same privilege yeah. as they do. But they're not doing yeah. that. Yep. But if you ask them about it, if you ask Tommy Lahren and Betsy DeVos and all these women about it, if you say, why did you vote for Donald Trump or why are you working in his administration? They'll tell you he's a champion for women. For white women. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> I think this is where we can distinguish between women who are aligning themselves with a bigger ideology, which still benefits them, versus women who maybe unintentionally uphold the patriarchy for other reasons. So if we talk about these women who do it intentionally first, I think in these cases, it's because they do perceive themselves as standing to win something regardless. And I think it, it comes fundamentally from a place of selfishness. I mean, it depends, because there are women who uphold Trump and that kind of brand of politics in the States in the name of what they think is God. So they think that they are performing God's will, because Trump is a Christian and he stands for conservative Christian values. Uh, it's beyond me how they think that, given how he lives his life, but I guess it all has to do with abortion policy. But in general, I think there are women who stand up for him because they ascribe to conservative Christian beliefs, and that's sort of what he branded himself as doing. 
And then there are women who are either explicitly or implicitly racist and also ascribe to the America First doctrine. So they're trying to pull up the ladder yeah, behind so could them. Yeah, so we talk about the women who they're not doing these things explicitly for racial gain or for religious gain, but for any other reason, do we know what's going on there? So I guess to talk about women who unintentionally uphold the patriarchy, we would have to define what that means first, like how you understand it. So what examples um, would you have? So I want to steer the conversation to more non-religious contexts where women uphold patriarchy. So for example, there was a study done recently, two researchers, one of the researchers was a woman, one of the researchers was a guy. They were trying to look at reviews from students on tutors. And so for one group of students, they gave the details of the tutor as a woman. And for another group of students, they gave the details of a male tutor. So the person who was running the classes for the entire semester, the person who was giving the feedback on essays, the person who was responding to emails, all of them was the same person. It was this woman, but half the students thought it was a male tutor that they were interacting with. And when it was time to give feedback, the students who thought they had a male tutor gave their fake male tutor a way higher feedback rating compared to the students who got the actual details of their tutor, which was a female tutor. And in fact, girls were more likely to give the female tutor a negative feedback compared to male students. Like to a degree of like seven times, there were seven times more likely than male students to give a negative feedback to the female tutor. And so I guess this is an example of a non-intentional upholding of the patriarchy where women sort of are hurting themselves in a way. Yeah. And I just want to figure out if you might have any ideas for why this happens. Yeah, I know a bit about the scientific context of how this happens. So basically, I think it's referred to as priming in psychology. So where people have implicit ideas of what a normative man or woman should behave like and of what certain behaviors mean when they're done by women versus men. So for example, the same behavior can be branded as a leadership quality in men versus being shrill in a woman. Yeah. And these kinds of things happen on such a deep, automatic, subconscious level that we can't really control it, unfortunately. And just to give you an idea of how automatic it is, there are tons of studies out there into the impact that things like wearing a skirt or wearing high heels can have on women's performance on certain tests. So if they, for example, did a cognitive strength test when they were wearing skirts or heels, they were more likely to overperform on the verbal reasoning and less likely to perform well on things like mathematics or mental rotation. And these are all things which are stereotypically linked to being female. And the same is also true of men. For example, in the beginning of an exam, if you have to tick a box specifying which gender right. you are, that can determine how you perform on those tests to a statistically significant degree. So a lot of it just has to do with social conditioning. And this tends to happen over a person's entire lifespan. So, I mean, the sad fact is changing this has to happen on a very large collective level. It has to do with media portrayals and the way that your parents talk to you the way that you've been spoken to by a teacher at school, all of those things reinforce your ideas of how women differ from men. I guess we've talked about two different kinds of women. Women who uphold the patriarchy because they're in structures that kind of force them to do so, or it benefits them to uphold the patriarchy in those contexts. Yeah. Or women who unknowingly do so because of, like Lynn said, years and years of priming. And I guess just to wrap the conversation up, how do we move forward from there? How do we, you know... I don't want to say deal with these kinds of women as if they're a problem, but 
how do we proceed from here? I guess is the question I want to direct to both Lynn and Basim. Well, social change happens on multiple levels. So the individual, the family, the societal. On a societal level, we're already seeing a lot of improvement. So the fact that we're even having this conversation is because it's a taking center stage and because people are continuing to draw attention to it and engage in public debates. But I think on a personal and family level, it has to do with people questioning their own ideas and how they choose to live out their private lives. Because the fact is that women can uphold the patriarchy even just by choosing to tolerate certain behaviors from male co-workers or even from their own male partner. One of the things that really frustrates me is the conversations that women insist on having, not really as much in our generation, but maybe Gen X and above. But they have a lot of conversations about whether women can have it all, like whether they can balance work and family. And to actually spend time debating this question as though it's a moral argument is extremely detrimental. And in my opinion, does uphold the patriarchy because we shouldn't be asking, can they or should they? We should be asking why it isn't yeah. currently possible. That's a good question. Um, yeah. yeah, if you want to do that, that's it's lack of opportunity, for example. And so a lot of things need to be covered in order to change the current condition, because the current condition is so based on the current system. The current system is clearly not working because the command, the command figures, the central figures yeah. who are on top of and them. And um, another men. important thing to point out is that there is this cultural phenomenon where the more women enter a specific field, the more that field becomes devalued. This myth what? That, yeah, there is a myth out there, which you've probably heard a lot, which is that women gravitate towards low-paid, low-skilled jobs. And that's why there's a wage gap, for example. But there was a, a very large study done, which looked at changes in the rates of pay for specific industries, depending on the ratio of women to men. And it looked at it over a period of several decades. What it did find is that it wasn't that women were gravitating towards low skilled or low paid jobs. It's that the more women entered that field, the more low paid it became. And the more men flooded a specific industry, the more high paid it became. So two really good examples of this. One is computer science, which used to be female dominated in the 70s and 80s. As more men came into it and became tech bros in Silicon Valley, it's now one of the highest paid industries in the world. Medicine is another really good example because in Russia, for example, it's a female dominated industry and doctors get very little pay. In the States, it has for the longest time, I think it's changing now, but it has been male dominated and they get among the highest salaries. Yeah. So this is another one of patriarchy's magic tricks. If I could say something to that point, it's also about value because when you think of women, for example, doing jobs, you don't think of them doing manual physical labor, for example, because of whatever reason. So you find them being a teacher, being a secretary mm -hmm. to do those types of jobs that don't require much physical or emotional exertion. Yeah. So when they do go to positions of science, technology, which are very big industries, their value is less compared to men. And that's why these industries suffer because of this innate, this thinking that if a woman enters it, it's going to be devalued because yeah. of her, not because of the industry, because of her. Yeah. So if she can do it, it must be easy. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the fact is, this is purely driven by misconceptions or false beliefs around women and the value of women's work. And bizarrely, it has been proven. So studies have pointed towards this, but the evidence isn't really well recognized and it's not known in public conversation. So we keep running in circles talking about how it is that we can get more women into more highly paid industries and get them to be more interested in high paid jobs instead of just wanting to focus on social work and social care and all of these apparently low skilled things.
I think the first step when it comes to the professional sphere is acknowledging that this happens and combating people's implicit biases through things like education and being careful with media portrayals. But one of the things that I also think is really interesting is the way that patriarchy is upheld in the private sphere, so in families, because this is a particularly important for how we raise girls and also boys, because I think that's the best chance we have, molding these younger minds to think differently and to value things differently, because then when they're in charge, and they think that we are the old backwards thinkers, they'll, you know, they'll fix everything. <laughs> I guess, Lynn, you mentioned a little bit about how if we were to address the situation, it'll be being mindful about how on an individual scale, you know, how we race the future generation, how we talk to our kids, how we do all of these things. But I guess on a broader scale, the topic we're talking about, why women uphold the patriarchy, a lot of it is just a conversation about gender inequality to begin with. Like, how much of it do you think could be addressed by government legislation or company policies? Well, or... um, when it comes to preventing women from upholding the patriarchy, I think that happens on a private level. But when it comes to addressing gender equality overall, a lot can be done at a government level. So in the EU, for example, there has been a lot of research has uh, indicated that long maternity leave is not really a good thing in terms of women's careers and the relationship that um that men end up having with their children and also the dynamic that results within nuclear families. So countries where maternity leave is a year long for women and then paternity leave is 10 days, they tend to find that women are more likely to drop out of the workforce over time or to have a major career slowdown because they spend a year out and then more and more of the resources in the family are diverted to making sure that the man's career continues progressing at a normal level. And what they've started to do to address this is promote quite a long period of parental leave, which is exclusively for the man. So he can't just give it to the woman and say, okay, you spend a few more months with the kid. Instead, it's like either the man uses it or he loses it. So um, this can be a period of as much as four months or even a year in countries like Sweden. Whereas maternity leave, I think it's generally untouched, but some countries are scaling back the amount of time that women are expected to spend with their kids in comparison. So that kind of thing can really shift the family dynamic. And just to point out, like when men spend time with babies, their testosterone levels drop. So the more time they spend around babies, the more things change on a physiological level for them too, which helps them to adapt more to fatherhood. Things like skin-to-skin -skin contact with babies. But right. actually choosing to... Sorry, my daughter ran into the room. I have to get her to... Sorry, Kaylin. <laughs> Just a bit longer. Oh, no. <laughs> That's so cute. Sorry, Cleo. On cue. <laughs> yeah, just thank you. <laughs> I think it's a good place to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Basim, for joining us. We we definitely. I, I mean, I learned a lot just from listening to this. Like, I think there's more that we can explore into this as well. But it's been very, very wonderful to have you both on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll have you again to discuss other things. Thank you very much for having <laughs> us. Thank you. Thank you, Bal. Thank you, Zulu. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, feel free to drop us a mail. And you can also follow us on Twitter at he, she, they say underscore. Till next time. Bye. Bye.